Okay, so I guess we're the Youth Equity Squad, and basically right now we are a, uh, we are youth in Manchester that are trying to like build a community of youth trying to um, speak their voice of the problems that we face on a daily basis. Some of the students that don't face these problems, like on a daily basis, they think like, oh, everything's perfectly fine, like everything's okay, like we're not we're not dealing with anything. One of my favorite quotes in life that we use a lot in this group is get comfortable being uncomfortable and it's been on gym walls it's been it stuck with me throughout my entire life and it applies to so many different parts of my life and i think getting comfortable with being uncomfortable will not only help me with this kind of work but a lot of other work like throughout my lifetime a lot of teachers they're worried about oh how am i going to get my test scores up or oh how am i going to you know be a better teacher like when all students feel comfortable in the classroom, when all students feel like they can raise their hand, when all students feel like they can make a meaningful contribution to something, then those test scores will go up. Then uh, the district and schools will feel more equitable. Welcome to Disinvested a podcast about reimagining a city and building a stronger, more inclusive community. Created by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. I'm Tyler Johnson. This episode is about education. When we were growing up, students were put into categories. You played sports or you were in the arts. You were studious or you were the class clown. But perhaps the most insidious of these labels were college versus non-college. Every student was one of the two. If you were college material, your future was set. You'd graduate from a university, get a prestigious job, and have a happy career in life. If you were deemed not college material, you were encouraged to learn a trade as a fallback plan because that was your only hope of having a decent life. Nowadays, we realize the error in this type of thinking. For starters, we recognize that all jobs have value. There are many paths to success that don't involve college, and all of those paths deserve our respect. But that's only part of the issue. Our educational system doesn't exist in a vacuum. The same disparities we've discussed throughout the series, poverty, trauma, and a myriad of other issues, affect children from the time they're born, through their educational career, and into adult life. You've probably heard about the opportunity gap. Many students enter school already facing a number of barriers to success. This creates disparities between students, which show up in test scores, reading levels, and more. As students fall behind, they face additional barriers, and the gap widens with each passing grade. By the time they're choosing between colleges and careers, some of them don't have much choice at all. Many students' options have been severely limited by life circumstance, money, and other factors beyond their control. How can we ensure that every student receives the same opportunity at a quality education and a successful career of their own choosing? We're not naive enough to think that you can fix the American educational system in a 40-minute podcast. What we will do in this episode is share some wisdom from educators, researchers, and students, and hopefully challenge some of the assumptions you may have about education. We'll begin with Jay Williams, president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. So there was a study that was recently published by Georgetown University that sends a chilling message that in our country today, it is better to be rich than it is to be smart. And if you think of that, the message that that potentially sends to our students, that no matter how hard you work, no matter how committed you are, you do you know, all the things that are asked of you, 
there are colleagues that you have that because they were born to wealthy families, they have a higher opportunity, a better chance to find themselves gainfully employed, uh, living a successful life simply because of the wealth that they were born into. Uh, that's a very chilling and stark message. So to the extent that you know we can, through our educational investments and other partnerships, begin to address that, begin to focus, again, not on the achievement gap, but the opportunity gap, I think it bodes well uh, and is an obligation we have to at least try. Dr. Leslie Torres Rodriguez, Hartford Public Schools. I am the superintendent. One in 10 of our uh, kindergarten students and even first grade students missed at least 18 days of school uh, or 10% of the school year, which um, is the definition of a chronically absent student. And so that starts early on in kindergarten, which, and it continues throughout up until high school. And so that indicates to us that this is a broader challenge that we have, that it is also a need around the adults and a community a challenge that we all have to embrace and collectively uh, address. And, you know, only 17% of those students uh, will be able to read on grade level when they get to third grade. There are inequities in terms of health disparities, access to health care. You know, food insecurity, for example, is, is something that we not often think about, but it's a reality. Home insecurities. And so it's much broader than what we see play out in, in our classrooms. As I think about my own personal uh, mission, that is uh, to foster quality and equitable education. I think about when I was nine years old and I came to this country, to Hartford actually, um, from Puerto Rico and my mother moved you know, to Hartford and my mother, brother and I lived in a very small cramped one bedroom apartment and as an English learner, I remember uh, being afraid to go to school because I you know, identified as having a language uh, barrier. And so there were times in which my needs as a learner were not met in the best way possible. Because of education, I am able to change the trajectory of my family and generations to come. That is why high-quality education matters in our community. My name is Beth Bai. I'm the commissioner of the Office of Early Childhood in Connecticut. All children are born ready to learn, and we need a system that makes sure we take advantage of that. Poverty keeps knocking. And what I found as a child care director in inner city Hartford and inner city Boston was that families face so many challenges as they're trying to get out of poverty. I defy anyone to start where a lot of families start and make your way up and out of poverty uh, just because it's so hard. There are all these challenges that families face in trying to move toward economic stability that we need systems in place to try to help them take those steps because one thing is true. Every parent wants their baby to be healthy, wants their child to be well, wants them to have friends, wants them to do well in school, wants them to get a good job, wants them to go further than they did. And that starts in those earliest years. Uh, the brain, the first three years of brain development, that's 80% of brain development happens in those first three years. And those critical skills, um, like learning to communicate, like focus and self-control, attention, being able to pay and switch attention, those are skills that children learn when they're two years old, the kind of skills that a workforce uh, is looking for, that you know, a manufacturer 
or a higher ed institution that's hiring a professor. They all want workers who have those internal controls, um, who can take responsibility, who can focus and achieve their goals. And that really does start when a baby's young with warm, responsive care in infancy and then supporting their development through toddlerhood, preschool, elementary, and high school. It's all connected. Dr. G. Duncan Harris, and I am the Chief Executive Officer of Capital Community College. Last year, we uh, decided to conduct a study of our students, uh, qualitative and quantitative, of the issues that were impacting their ability to uh, successfully complete college. And uh, the uh, number one reason that, that students indicated or the, the barrier was financial. Most of our students receive aid in the form of, of uh, Pell Grants, et cetera. But that, once again, doesn't account for life expenses. So despite uh, our students being able to, to manage kind of the cost of tuition, you know, the, the other life costs are, are typically what cause them to have financial um, problems at the college. A lot of the community colleges are, are taking on food security. I tend to not be able to focus when I've skipped lunch. So imagine being a student in calculus who hasn't eaten for a couple days. Uh, once again, a student that uh, doesn't have, uh, you know, reliable housing uh, that uh, might be couch surfing. And so, uh, you know, once again, in terms of a hierarchy of needs, it's kind of hard to concentrate on physics if you're not sure where you're going to, to be sleeping that night. We recognize that um, and have adopted a more holistic support to students, recognizing that while, um, you know, our central focus is instruction and learning, that, um, you know, students don't leave certain things in the parking lot when they enter into a classroom. Developmental hurdles in early childhood, attendance and behavioral issues in grade school, and food insecurity in college. These are all symptoms of the same cause. In our first episode, we talked about the disparities that exist in our community, mostly around race, place, and income. These disparities play out in our educational system every single day. Darren Graves is an associate professor of education at Simmons University in Boston. Darren does research on the intersection of critical race theory, racial identity development, and teacher education. I attended Yale University. I had experiences there that made it very clear of the disparities that exist you know, in our society. I was tutoring at the Youth Probation Center, has a tutoring program. I was partnered up with a student who's probably about 16 years old, maybe 17, Not, and I was probably like 19. And it was great, and we would come together, and we had a, it was nice. You know, we'd get work done, we would talk about things, but then at the end, you know, and it was time to go home. It was just very stark, because you'd, you'd sort of leave the building and he would basically go right and I would go left. Going right was basically going back into neighborhoods that were highly under-resourced. And then I was going back to like Yale's, you know, Yale's campus, which is pinnacle of like, you know, the ivory tower. I felt like me and, and, the, and the student I was working with were not too dissimilar, but we were going to like very dissimilar places. I didn't have all the tools yet to understand like how and why it was happening, but I knew it wasn't right. I had another experience still in New Haven. Um, I was working on a psychology research project where we'd have some kids who were from New Haven, you know, 16, 17 years old, black, you know, lived in the under-resourced neighborhoods, right? And they were reading three, four, five grades behind grade level. And then we'd have these other group of, of students who were white, middle class, upper middle class, who were, you know, like 12 years old and, you know, whatever, sixth grade, and they were reading two or three grade levels ahead. 
it was so stark the difference in like how the students were performing on the basis of seeing like race for sure in class, seeing that disparity in how the students were performing on like basic stuff gave some more substance to why it felt unfair before. Um, but yet, how does the school let that happen? Huayu Sebastian Chern is a sociologist at NYU Steinhardt, whose work focuses on the experience of youth of color and immigrants in the United States. He's also a former middle school teacher. He told us about a study on implicit bias in teaching. Um, it was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, interestingly with iPhones. The final sample had 150,000 students in the United States, which is one of the largest data collection nationwide. They gave teachers an iPhone to record the lessons that they taught. And the idea was that uh, a team of experts would then grade the teaching that they saw in the videos. This study was really amazing because essentially it gave a large scale you know, measure of how is this teacher actually teaching their classroom, not what are the test score gains of students in this classroom versus like, it was just, it is actually like, how is this teacher teaching? And the punchline for that paper is that the more black students a teacher has in a classroom, generally the lower teaching quality they manifest. You couldn't go into a classroom and interview a teacher and ask them about their racial biases or their implicit biases. Almost by definition of the implicit part, right? Uh, people aren't aware of it. If you ask them, you will be very aware that they're probably offended that you're asking them, right? When I go in and I talk to, particularly if it's teachers, I say, I know that I failed when there's no questions. I know that I failed when there's just complacency or boredom in the audience. And if you are very angry and incited by what I've said, that's actually, to me, a form of success. The problem is not among teachers. The problem is among U.S. society. Virtually all teachers and administrators want to serve their, their youth better. And I think that it's not about the will. It's actually about the knowledge. I'm always quite shocked when a school has more than one or even one conversation explicitly about race and immigration a year. I, I tell teachers, right, if you're not actually talking about race specifically, if you're not talking about gender, if you're not talking about immigration, then I don't quite know what you're talking about. So... Now that we understand the problem, what can we do about it? In our previous episodes, when discussing issues like economic development or community safety, we start with tactical solutions and end by encouraging people to change their mindset. When it comes to education, a lot of people believe that mindset is the most important thing. Here's Beth Bai. Commissioner of the Office of Early Childhood in Connecticut. Expectations are everything. I mean, there's some pretty cool research in uh, the early childhood intervention community around asking parents about their hopes and dreams for their child. Just that question and someone listening and writing it down helps a child make more progress. So I think we have to have parents and help them understand that they have expectations for their child. They sometimes are so stuck in the day-to-day. -day. That's important. But training our early childhood workforce about having high expectations for all children, I've been in centers where I'll hear, well, these, these kids don't do well in an unstructured preschool like this. You know, this idea that some children can be in unstructured environments and others can't, is, it's really just flat-out prejudice. I'll give you an example, and it's probably not in early childhood, but in West Hartford, which is a community that's uh, fairly integrated, 
in the high school, in Conard High School, they made a rule that any child could take an AP class. So any student has access to college-level classes. And uh, the achievement in that high school went up tremendously. And even with some of the families and students with financial challenges, they have raised the expectations for every student at the school and just moved way up the rankings. I watched that happen as a member of the school board and thought, wow. I went to school, it was tracked, right? And when I wasn't put in the highest track, I went home and cried for three days till my parents finally went to school because you'd never say anything to a teacher and said, just give her a try because I can't deal with her coming home anymore. And I just think about my trajectory if my expectations were track three and not track one. It just, we have to believe in all students uh, that they can make it. Because many decisions about schools occur within government, the best way for the average resident to make change is to get involved at the local level, such as voting for your school board or attending PTA meetings. For nonprofits and foundations, there are many ways we can support children's learning and advance equity that don't involve taking on the responsibilities of government. Local nonprofits partner with schools to address issues such as food insecurity. At the Hartford Foundation, we support research and hold convenings for educators to get together and share information. We've also formed partnerships with a number of schools in our region, supporting home visits, family engagement, play-based initiatives, efforts to improve literacy, and more. The earlier you can support a student, the better the results. Here's Leslie Torres Rodriguez, superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. Research does speak to that, to the point that, you know, when our students are proficient by grade three, chances are their proficiency is going to likely sustain their progression into high school on track uh, to graduate will also sustain you know, there's a concentration of need that is with us every single day. We rely so much on our partnerships in order to help us lift this work and be able to provide uh, the needs that go beyond the academic domains. When we think about the community school model, the essence is making sure that the school is at the center of the community and besides being open beyond the regular school hours, that it really seeks to meet the needs, not just of the student, but that it does though within the context of the community and its needs as well. And so for that, it includes uh, health services, mental, medical, vision screening, for example, clinical service, case management service provision, not just for the student, but family as well in a context of um, limited resources, like often urban school districts, are challenged by, but we have to do more with less, and it requires that we step back and identify those that need more. And for us, that means that students, schools with higher rates of chronic absenteeism, for example, will receive additional support. Same with schools that have higher rates of English learners, because we know that there are added needs that those specific students have. Uh, one of the things that's that's interesting is as we talk about partners, we certainly consider the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving a key stakeholder in our success. Dr. G. Duncan Harris, CEO of Capital Community College. And we uh, recently were successful in receiving a, a planning grant uh, to engage in some equity work here. We're, we are um, in the midst of developing an equity center. Part of the the reason that many of our students may not be successful here are, are 
uh, related to, to inequity that, that has uh, impacted their lives for, for quite some time. And so, uh, you know, if we're able to, once again, ameliorate some of those, those, those deficits that have occurred through no fault of their own, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. And so in the equity center, we, it would house all of our community partners. And uh, on Thursdays from 8 to 11, there's a representative from CRT. That uh, CRT rep could assist that student in addressing the housing and security issues. Uh, let's say that a student had uh, some other challenges around child care and that on uh, Mondays we had a representative from the YWCA Career Ladders Program and there are resources available to, to, to single parents around uh, support for child care. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had the conceptual framework, but we didn't have kind of the funding and access to content expertise, which is uh, you know, the, the Hartford Foundation stepped in. As you heard earlier, the disparities affecting our students also affect their families. Again, here's Beth Bai. Yeah, one of the great things about the Hartford Foundation is they connect to national resources to big thinking about how to support systemic change, and then they make investments based on their research. The two-gen approach to poverty is really, how do you look at the whole family when you're looking at social services, human services, and other services? When I'm looking at a policy as a commissioner, how can I see not just how does that policy affect the child, but how does it affect the whole family? When we're building our child care supports, do we have some supports that can work at nighttime? If parents have off-hour jobs, we've got to be thinking of that, not just build a system built for children. We've got to be thinking what works for families in 2019. And I think uh, as a system, we haven't been doing a great job of thinking of the family at the center because the success of a child is tied to the success of a family. A high-quality early childhood program for two years is great. Four years is better. But if the family is not getting what they need and continues to experience stress around how am I going to pay the bills, taking jobs that are all off hours at minimum wage and always worrying, they're not going to be able to support the child the way they want. As we move forward, we need to consider what all of us can do to advance equity in our schools. Again, YU's Sebastian Chung of NYU Steinhardt. Anywhere across the United States, you see these videos of like, you know, someone screaming horribly, really racist things at someone. And then they're like, why did you say that? And they're like, I'm not racist. The racism that actually, I think, really, particularly in the education realm, that really limits the opportunity for youth of color and immigrant youth, it's at the policy level. It's policies that say, okay, we're going to fund inequitably different schools. That, and I define a racist law as the law may have no mention of race, but once the law is enacted, are racial inequalities created, maintained, or worsened, right? And if the answer is yes, yes, and yes, then that means that this is a racist law. So I think that racism is so much bigger than an individual person being a not nice person. I think sometimes when I'm called to go to schools, they, 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 they're looking to be like, you're a professor of this. Are we racist? And I'm like, would you trust my answer? Because you shouldn't, right? But the idea that like once you're given this label or once you are decidedly not a racist, that everything that you do from then on is either perfectly horrible or perfectly amazing. And the reality of it is we're complex human beings. And in any given day, we can have incredibly anti-racist, amazing, affirming interactions. And we can also have really problematic, probably racist interactions. In my experience as a middle school teacher, I never saw anything that was like 
screaming out, you know, racial epithets or like it wasn't aggressive. At the same time, I knew that the school that I taught in, the students that we suspended, the students that we retained, that it was disproportionately black students. Uh, I get lots of questions about discipline. Like our school has a discipline problem. Although 60% of our students are black, 90% of our suspensions are black. What are we supposed to do? We're not racist. But I just say, okay, could it be something as simple as every time you refer a black student for suspension, you have some extra step to be like, no, 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 no. What did this student do, right? And what happens if a white student did it? Would you recommend a student for suspension? And the answer is, yes, I would recommend any student for suspension because this was egregious. Then perhaps it's less of a bias issue. But I think oftentimes, and the teachers actually will say to me, yeah, if we did that, if we just pause to think about race, I think that not only would we suspend fewer black students, we would just suspend fewer students, period. So this is like a shift away from saying a school is racist, a principal is racist, an individual is racist, and to actually be able to identify when are instances in a schooling setting where these things can happen. In their own practice, when can they detect these things? I think that's, that's, it's much more concrete. I think it's much less judgmental. But I would love for districts to engage in processes where they could learn authentically about you know, the history in general or the specific histories of the communities that they're in around the ways in which communities of color have been resilient. Darren Graves of Simmons University. So in other words, like reframing black and brown communities and kids as things that need to be fixed and more as, you know, amazingly resilient folks who we need to, like, draw the best out of. But they may be able to put that in conversation with issues that the students are facing now and, and are navigating now or things that they need to, that they want to understand. Then you get, I think, the kind of the results you're looking for. So in other words, it really requires the teacher to both cede some authority to the student about what it is we're learning and why honoring that they might have some valid experiences to bring to the table, and then connecting that to helping them learn the learning outcomes. One local school district, Manchester, has taken steps to put decision-making power in the hands of students. The Manchester Student Equity Team was formed last year as a response to some of the issues students were facing in their daily lives. We sat down with several of the students for a group discussion about their experiences, their goals, and what it means to have equity in the classroom. It's been very empowering to be in a leadership role like this and to have people, as people who are in like administrative positions, put so much trust in me is like the most amazing feeling ever. Um, constantly during school, kids are harassed about wearing do-rags on their heads and these are the kids' culture. They're not wearing it to disrupt school because at the end of the day, wearing a do-rag on your head isn't doing anything or hurting anybody. Also, white kids were wearing do-rags and a black kid was wearing do-rag in the same exact class and the teacher would only calling the black kids saying, well, you need to take your do-rag off and say nothing to the white kids. So starting in middle school, I started to notice little things like um, dress code violations would get put on black and brown kids, especially um, girls, a lot more than anybody else. So I started to notice that. And then I would notice the white kids wearing the same exact thing, but nothing at all was being said to them. And I was like, well, what's this? Uh, Majesty and I and a couple of students who uh, joined a part. We um, changed the Manchester mascot since 1939 or 19, 1949. Yeah, 1949. It was the Manchester Indians, and um, it was de-emphasized. But w I never really liked the mascot or like wanted to be 
a proud Manchester Indian because it felt wrong to use a racial identity as a mascot. And I'm on the yearbook club too and seeing past yearbooks of, you know, white kids or non-Native American kids dressing up in um, tribal paint or using racial slurs that were just so wrong and so racist. It it made me pissed off and like we wanted to change the mascot. So we got um, the school behind us and we went to the board of ed and eventually we uh, did change the mascot um, to the Manchester Red Hawks. So this year we'll be able to start as the Manchester Red Hawks and not the Manchester Indians. We presented in front of administrators. Like some of them were like cool, some of them weren't. Some of them were very like, I don't want to say combative because they, they weren't really opening their mouths, but you could tell, you know, when you just get that vibe off people, when they're just like, they're just not ready to, to change. We have such a progressive superintendent who's very open to the fact that times are changing and he's very like down for the cause and he supports us and I thank him for that and I thank everybody else for that. I've noticed that I've gotten to have more of these conversations based on race and inequity and how it affects me and students like me with my teachers. Um, I've noticed a lot more teachers being more responsive and being more honest about what they about what they know but even being more vulnerable as to what they don't know. Teachers are starting to talk talk about it. I've had like situations where teachers would like stop like teaching the class and start talking about stuff like that because it was like not only because it was like I guess distracting the class but it was like a lot um a topic on our minds coming from like the white perspective like I really the I've been here for in this group for two years and like really just sitting down instead of like um I think it was Lyndon Johnson who said like you're not um you're not learning anything when you're talking like I just really um just stopped talking, just started to listen to so many other stories. And I knew like racism and like sexism and all forms of bigotry was big in this country. And like just really hearing personal stories, like my personal peers, like people who I go to school with, sit next to in class, like have to go with, through this on a daily basis. It really made me just like understand that as a country, we are just not doing anything unless if we are talking about these huge racial inequities in um, this district, this state, and across the country. I feel like when teachers make accommodations for all their students and they make all their students feel welcome and safe in their classroom, it encourages students to keep their hand up and to, you know, always to feel like what they have, what they have to say is valued as opposed to thinking that, like, they're a burden in their classroom or what they have to say is invaluable. When they're treated with equity, they feel like they can do more because when you don't treat them the way you treat other students, they're going to want to stay behind the classroom, keep their hand down, not answer anything. But like when you actually treat them with respect, like they're an actual human being and give them what they need to succeed, you're going to see a whole other side of the student. Um, so I had a teacher, Ms. Okwazi, for seventh grade. Um, she was actually my first black female teacher that I ever had. And it was actually really good to have somebody who looked similar to me teach me because all my life I've only seen, you know, white teachers. And then on top of that, she also made me feel like I actually mattered in the classroom, like my opinion was going to be voiced. And then in that class, that was one of my best classes that I had. I semi-agree with what Surya said because I do want us to all have equal opportunities, but some people need equitable opportunities mm -hmm. if that makes sense in the classroom because some people need certain more needs than others like if they need extra help or extra understanding so I hope that teachers 
understand like the different needs that other kids may acquire. A big layer um, has to do with resources. Again, here's Darren Graves of Simmons University. We have an education funding system that's tied to residents and property rights. And so, you know, I think the ways in which we have historically and, and, you know, contemporarily kind of bungled, you know, housing equity, right? The ways in which racial housing discrimination was rampant, then created a scenario where the schools themselves are going to be highly under-resourced because the communities themselves were under-resourced, if not divested from. But it's not just about resources. I think there's a bigger issue, and I think it sort of ties it all together, is the way that blackness and brownness has been constructed is as not intellectual or not caring about, you know, intel, you know intellectual endeavors or not caring about school. The thing that I've come to understand and what makes this also tricky is that from an academic perspective or even a historical perspective, you come to this conclusion that this, these things are slow. We got to take it, take our time to get it right. You know what I mean? And so, you know, these one-off solutions that often get put out there by politicians often seem short-sighted and crazy, right? <laughs> As a parent, right? I don't have time for like the you know the psycho- the developmental psychologists and the historians and the right to figure this all out. Like I need my kid to be doing well now, right? So I honor that that process. So in other words, I think what we owe to the kids is like the best, the absolute best that we can give them right now, because um, anything less is just not enough and not fair. So, how can we help our students right now? This brings us back to the idea of college versus non-college paths and breaking down those divisions. Alex Johnson is the president and CEO of Capital Workforce Partners. Individuals to be successful have to go to high school and then go to four years of college. That's the roadmap to success. And I would argue that it should be considered one of many roadmaps to success all jobs that pay good wages should have value. So if anyone, somebody wants to be a plumber, a carpenter, an electrician, that we need to hold those jobs with the same high regard as we do typical white-collar jobs. So I think as we begin to level that playing field and give value and respect to all good jobs, I think that would be my vision for how we would continue to build this this city, this state, this community, but also build it in a way that we're enabling individuals to to achieve a level of happiness and at the same time achieve a level of self-sufficiency by doing what they feel comfortable and confident in doing. And I think that's the, the narrative that I would really love to see us change because I think as we do that, We will enable all individuals to be successful. Regardless of what path they're on, we should help students find internships and volunteer opportunities. This is a great way for students to gain real-world experience and determine whether they want to eventually work in a specific field. It's especially beneficial for students on a non-college path because many employers still favor college grads, and this gives them something to show on a resume. Mainly what I do downstairs is, like, bike mechanic. We met Leonardo Mendez at BC Co, a bike shop in Hartford, where he works as an intern. He told us about the benefits of having an internship while still in high school. Before I found BC Co, um, I was really out in the community, like doing not so positive things. One of my main reasons for coming to BC Co was just my interest and love for bikes. My family, like we kind of grew up in like not such a stable home. So like our main transportation, like we depended on bikes. 
I grew up in a low-income home. Like, my mom wasn't, she wasn't stable enough to, like, support some of our, some of our needs that we have. Just coming over here and knowing that I could um, afford some of my stuff and, like, also help out with my mom, like, with some of her bills, some of the clothes that I needed. It was, it's just, like, a, it's a great feeling. Like, I've learned a seriously good amount of knowledge that I had to learn to, like, whether if it's career readiness, if it's um, communication skills. I was really a, um, a quiet person. Like, I did not want to talk to no one at all. But coming into the program, it kind of made me more, um, it was just like, I have to talk to people. Like, I feel like without communication, I wouldn't have, like, been good with interviews. I wouldn't have been good with anything. Also, being downstairs, it kind of, like, influenced me to, like, and, like, getting our own business and how to, like, properly maintain a business. So that's just kind of stuff that I really want to do with, like, in the next five years is just go to school. Still focused on, like, bike mechanics and stuff, but also do business and, like, see how I can grow and prosper from that. Here's Jay Williams, president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. It is providing uh, a pathway for those who choose to pursue a college, whether it's two-year degree, a four-year degree, or beyond. Uh, and for those that choose a different pathway that allows them to obtain a set of skills. But we also have to ensure that one isn't held as more superior to the other, that they are equally important, that whatever path you choose is important that you pursue that path, and that you also are supported on that path. So how does supporting non-college paths tie into overall educational equity? It's about changing the approach so that schools serve students and their needs, rather than trying to fit students in a predetermined path or category. If we want to one day achieve educational equity, it's bigger than any one program or series of programs. We need to look at the students, disparities, and the educational system and how these things are all interconnected. When students graduate from high school, we tell them to never stop learning. It's time we take our own advice. We'll leave you where we began with comments from some local educators. Here's G. Duncan Harris of Capital Community College and Dr. Leslie Torres Rodriguez of Hartford Public Schools. We um, accept the, the top 99% of, of any graduating class, right? And so it's, it's interesting because um, at one point, there was an impetus, you know, to, to kind of seek college-ready students. And so there's been a shift in that, that we now are student-ready colleges. And so the students that come to us, we should be able to do some assessment, find out what the needs are, and, and help address any gaps in order to get them to be able to enter into the world of work or to transfer. And so we've really shifted. Uh, the bar is where it is. You know, we're, we're an accredited institution, so the bar doesn't move down. But what are the supports required to help our students get over that bar? And then that's what we try to address. So we owe our students uh, equity in excellence. And by that, I mean uh, to take into account uh, the needs that the whole student has. Yes, there are academic needs that we must meet, uh, but there are also all the other elements of, of the student's experience. Uh, being part of a community means supporting one another, even though it's challenging to do so. I am so very proud of serving um, on behalf of all of our students and our families. I love about my job that um, I get to serve and lead 
in uh, the community that essentially produced me. I, I love about my job that I can leverage my role, my voice, my knowledge base, my skill set, and my disposition to change the trajectory of our students, their families, and ultimately this beautiful city. I feel so hopeful about our, our future. You know, I refer to our students, each and every one of them, as being beautiful and capable students. Um, that is what I uh, believe uh, Hartford makes Hartford so amazing. Thanks for listening to Disinvested. I'm Tyler Johnson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share with your friends. Next week, we'll talk about basic human needs. When you think about basic human needs, you probably think about food and shelter. But there's a lot more to it. Next time on Disinvested. This podcast is created by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. Produced by Tom Zaleznak. Steph McGillivary, Michaela Mendegraal, and Autumn Gordon Chow. Music provided by Among the Acres. Special thanks to everyone who appeared in this episode. The Hartford Foundation supports organizations in Greater Hartford through grants, capacity building, public policy, and more. Visit hfpg.org to learn more.